Thank you, Nancy. Uh, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Uh, happy Super Bowl Sunday to you. Uh, if, uh, I don't know if we can say that word. We might get sued. So that was our last Sunday as a church. Uh, but anyway, but it's good to be with you on this big game day. We actually did find out churches can say Super Bowl. Uh, there was like this story. You know, I don't need to go into the rant of this, but you were allowed to say Super Bowl. So don't worry if like you think we're going to get sued. But I never know how to start sermons, just so you know. Um, it's really good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Reed. Uh, I have a joy of getting to be the pastor here of Trinity Fellowship. And so um, I'm elated to walk through this passage together with you. And so if this is your first time, glad you're here. Uh, but let's take a moment just to pray for our time as we turn to God's word. And so ask for the Spirit to give us guidance and insight. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. We come to you in the power of the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, the revealer of truth, the convictor of sin, to ask that you would, by your power, illuminate in our minds and hearts the truth of your word. And so, Lord, I ask that, that as we gather in this space together, that you would teach us that you would show us, that you would form us and make us a people who delight in your truth and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And so, Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we, okay, so where, where are my fourth and fifth graders at? Do we have some fourth and fifth graders? Okay, you guys are here. Okay, I have to, I, I, think, I think I ask you guys this question a lot. Like, what, what happens in elementary school? Like, do you guys still do show and tell? Do people still do show and tell? No? Yes? Any sh there's a show and tell? Who did? Okay, there is some show and tell. Good. There is hope for this generation. I'm thankful. I, like, one of my favorite memories of elementary school was show and tell. And, and some of you may not know this about me. I actually was a teacher for two years uh, before I entered into church ministry. I taught at a private Christian school and really enjoyed that time. And I actually, one of my traditions was we did show and tell on Fridays with high school students. And it was super fun. And, but show and tell with high schoolers is very different than show and tell with elementary school students. Case in point, one of my favorite memories was a student who, uh, his family was, was not from the United States, so there was some kind of cultural dynamics that they were trying to understand, and he came to share um, his, his, uh, his collection of cups uh, that they gathered from various vacation spots that they went to. And what he brought was just this wide collection of shot glasses. Uh, and, and he was showing, and it was, it was so sweet and adorable. He's like, this is a cup that we got in Orlando. And it's like, and so I told him later, I was like, just so you know, these are traditionally used to hold booze. And so it was a very interesting time. That is not even as great as the memory of the next Friday. A kid brought a samurai sword to class. And it's just like, this just tells you like, like what kind of like, I don't work there anymore. And I'll let you put piece the, the information together. No, I wasn't fired. I don't think, or maybe I should have been, but, but the point being is that like show and tell, regardless of what is shown or told, it's very memorable. The reason why show and tell as an experience is a profound way to learn something about someone is because you're not just hearing information, you are seeing something about this person that helps you understand them. There's something about the wedding together of what is shown and what is told that helps us understand a person. And that is very true, exceptionally true, when it comes to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus. That the gospel is good news. We've talked about this before. One of our values as a church is gospel centrality. 
And what we mean by that is that the gospel is not simply news that we hear and receive as, as information intellectually, but it is a news that moves us, as Lori said, in our call to worship. And so this morning, as we walk through Acts chapter 3, uh, this is the one kind of idea that I want us to ruminate on, to reflect upon, and it is this. The gospel is news that we show and tell. The gospel is news that we show and tell. So if, if you're new to Trinity, we, we've been walking through the, the book of Acts. We come to chapter 3, and it is the recording of the first miracle of the church. And so what we're going to do, I want to kind of set the context here. So the gospel has been spreading. People have been brought into this new group called the church. And what we're finding is that it's not just the Jewish community that is growing in, in numbers, but we're finding these cultural linguistic others, outsiders, who are being brought in. And then we come to Acts 3 and we find that this, this widening scope of who is brought in and welcomed into the church actually includes the social outsider, evidenced by the story of the lame man who is welcomed into the body of Christ. So the gospel is spreading, and in this story we find a remarkable invitation to someone who is truly, by all accounts, an outsider. And so what I want to do, I want to just kind of walk through the story together and just pause along the way and just point out some things for us to consider as we try to bring the first century text into the 21st century. So, so Acts chapter 3, if you have a Bible, you can have it open, you can follow along the screen. But Acts chapter 3, verse 1, we see these words recorded for us. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. So, so these two guys are on their way to the temple to engage in kind of a spiritual practice, okay? They're going to the temple to pray. And it's very interesting. It's very similar to language that Paul uses, or sorry, that Luke uses in his gospel in the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You can go back and read those stories in Luke 10 and Luke 18, respectively. Uh, but, but what we see is that these religious people, Peter and John, are going to the temple and, and instead of just having their mind focused on the spiritual activity of praying, their eyes are brought to the attention of a man in need. And we see this, we are introduced to the lame man in verse 2. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. Now, if you are familiar with church, if you've grown up around church, that, that's, that's great, but there may also be a challenge when we come to stories that are familiar, that we may hear them like, yeah, 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 there's a miracle, and the guy walks, blah, 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 like, that's great. Like, you just ruined the story for me, but like, sometimes we hear these stories, and we just kind of gloss over them. And what I want us to do is to really try to identify with this man who was lame from birth. I want you to try to feel what he feels. I mean, the language that is used to describe him is that he has never not known disability. This is all, like, from birth, this has been his story. So not only has he had to deal with physical limitations his entire life, he has also had to deal with the social limitations that has come with that. Because in this time, and in our day-to-day -day still, there is a certain stigma placed upon people who wrestle with and deal with various disabilities or chronic illnesses. And so this man is not just dealing with his physical disabilities, but the social consequences of that. And so, so some of you can identify with this person very well because of your own story, because of your own cha uh, challenges and pains and chronic issues. 
There's something in your story that can identify with this man. But I want us just to feel his despair. I want you to feel the rejection of being placed at this gate called beautiful day after day after day, begging for help and assistance. I want you to feel what this man is feeling. I want you to feel his limits that are, that are physical as well as the challenges that label him socially. And then I, when I think about this, some of you know this story about my, I have a little brother, uh, Aaron, who he had a stroke when he was seven years old. And, and he has been significantly kind of um, limited in his abilities because of that since that time. And, and pretty much every fight that I ever got into in elementary school and middle school was because I was trying to defend the kids that were picking on my little brother. Because that's what I do. That's my job as a big brother. Big brothers pick on their little brothers, right? But, but really, like, my anger was towards these people who weren't just picking on him for various reasons, but because of a disability he had. And it angered me. And, and my anger was not righteous all the time. It got me into a lot of trouble. But I want us to, to understand and try to identify something in our experience with this man. This man, he knew his need, absolutely. But there's probably a sense in which he was also kind of numb to the fact that, like, anybody's going to help him. Because if you notice the way he asks for money, look at verses 4 and 5. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. Which means he wasn't looking at them. He was sitting there probably with his face down just asking for money because he'd been doing it day after day after day. And no one's really kind of responding to his needs, but he's just like, can you help? Can you help me out? Can you help me out? But he's not really looking at these people because he basically just accepted his fate that this is his lot in life. He had given up hope. I want you to feel the rejection and hopelessness in this man. And so when he does ask for money, Peter and John tell him to look at him. This man was so used to rejection that he didn't even bother to look up. But in this moment, Peter pauses and helps this man feel seen. He helps this man, as, as some say, feel felt in this moment. In this tender moment, Peter humanizes this man who had been really dehumanized in various ways. Peter saw this man not as a pity project, but as an image bearer. And, and, and this is where I just want to pause for a second and just give us kind of a, a principle of truth to consider is this from the story. We won't fully love people if we don't truly see people. We will not fully love people if we don't truly see people, if we don't have the patience and the time to stop and understand what people are going through. In this moment, Peter shows this man the beauty of the gospel before he declares them the truth of the gospel. He doesn't sit down and tell him the grand narrative of scripture. He first shows compassion towards this man, why? Because the gospel is news that we show and tell. And so then, then in this moment, so, so this guy is hoping, maybe expecting Peter to give him what he's been asking for. And Peter responds by saying this, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Now, they, they, didn't, they didn't have what this man asked for, but they didn't allow, Peter and John didn't allow that to stop them from trying to care for him in some way. They gave what they could. And, and so what, what's so interesting, this reminds me, if, if you're familiar with the Bible story, this reminds me, and it might remind you, of the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Like, what do we do? How do we care for these people? 
And what does Jesus say? Like, well, what do we have? What's in your hand, essentially? And there's a boy that has two fish and five loaves, right? I was two fish, five loaves. Am I doing that right? Yeah. I was like, it was like five fish alone. Carry the man. Two fish, five loaves. It, it, the question is just, what is in your hand? What can be used in this moment? And so Peter, he doesn't have the thing that this man is asking for, but he does have something to give. And so again, let me just pause for a second and give us what is, what is something we can kind of apply to our lives in this moment. Sometimes we hold the application for the end of a sermon. I know I do that t- sometimes, but I think it's helpful just bring it into the message. And so here's what I would say from this. We need to focus on what God has given us and love from there. I think we, we tend to operate, I don't want to project on you, but I tend to operate more from the standpoint of what I don't have or what I'm incapable of rather than focusing on what God has given me. And if you're like me, that can stall you out from actually doing the right good thing in the moment. What I think we need to grow in in our, in our discipleship and devotion to Jesus is starting with this question of what is in my hand already? What has God given me rather than focusing on what I don't have in this moment? Focus on what God has given you and love from there. And so that may be your time. You you may be in a place where like, I don't have a lot of skills or abilities, but I have time. You may be a person who doesn't have a lot of time, but you may have a lot of connections or or networks. You you may be a person who has a lot of, of resources or skills and abilities, whatever it is. I want us to be open and honest about what has God given us. And how do we love from there? And ask God to give us the connection between what is in our hand and what is in what what are the needs around us. And so in so then in this moment, so what what does Peter say in verse eight? He heals them. He basically says, "Get up! What I what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk." And then in verse eight, we see this. And so he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with the man. Walking, leaping, and praising God. Now, now th- this is the miracle. He's, he's able to walk now. That's remarkable. But what we, what we must not miss is the second form of healing that takes place. That this man is not just cared for and then just moved on from. But that Peter and John bring him with them into the temple. That what we see in this moment is actually what we refer to as holistic discipleship. That Peter and John don't just simply care for this man's needs and move on, but they bring him along and welcome him into the community. This man's physical limitations were now healed, but the relational distance that he had been feeling his entire life was now beginning to be mended as he was welcomed into the temple with Peter and John. This man who had felt rejection and distance his entire life is now experiencing in one moment physical healing and relational healing. And the thing for us to consider in this part of the story is this. Do not underestimate the importance of making someone belong. Do not ever underestimate the importance of making someone belong. That can be one of the most profound ways that we show love and compassion and, frankly, is a way in which someone can come to know the truth of who Jesus is by the way that we make them belong. I remember several years ago, um, I, was, I was down on the plaza, and I had some time. I was waiting for an appointment, and there was, there was a man you know, experiencing homelessness down in the plaza, and I just began, struck up a conversation with him. And I want to be careful. I'm not sharing this story like to be pious. Like, 
Like I'm not a special person because I was talking to this man. But, but when I inquired about his story and like why he was in the situation he was in, he didn't talk about his financial troubles. He didn't necessarily even talk about drug addiction or anything like that. What he mostly focused on was the relational separation he felt from family, friends, and society. He didn't talk about his, his finances. He talked about how relationally bankrupt he was. And that relational separation is what actually caused the circumstances that he was in. Again, do not underestimate the importance of making someone belong. When I spoke to this man on the plaza, what he needed, yes, was a gospel that declared to him that his sin is no longer a barrier between him and a holy and righteous God. He also needed a gospel that said his social status was no longer a barrier between the beloved community known as the church. Both of those things need to go hand in hand if we are to be faithful ministers of a gospel that is to be shown and told. The gospel is news that we show and we tell. Now, I, I want to take a little bit of a side note for a second. Can we, can we do a little bit of a, a little excursus here? Can we do that? Okay. Even if you said no, I'm going to do it. But, uh, but I, w- I, want to, I want to give attention to a question that might be being asked by some of us either personally or on behalf of someone else in terms of this story. And that question is, why not me? I want to speak to this very likely question that's being asked, why not me? Like We're seeing what, what, G, what Peter is doing for this lame man, but there may be a question that we're asking, why not me? Why has Jesus not brought healing to my chronic illness or pain or difficulty or circumstance? And before I attempt to even, like, respond to that, I want to just first say, like, I'm sorry. Like, I, 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 I want to, as best I can, feel what you're feeling. It's terrible. I, I don't have a really great answer, but I just want to at least recognize how difficult it is. But, but I want to at least attempt to give a response. And I want to give a very short theological response that will feel a little bit cold, but then I want to give a warmer pastoral response. And the first response is this. Peter is continuing in the tradition of his rabbi. Peter is performing a miracle not for the miracle's sake. Just like Jesus, the miracles that Jesus performed were never meant to simply be a display of his power, but they were to point to and validate the message that the kingdom of God has broken into this world. The miracles were never meant to be the standard by which we would live, but to point to the good news that the kingdom of God has broken into our broken world and that there is now hope. And so so when we look at the miracles as if they are things that we should expect every single day and every single moment in all of our lives, that's not the point. The point is to point us to what kind of kingdom is breaking into this world. The miracles are meant to show compassion and validate the gospel of the kingdom. So that's my very cold theological answer. But let me offer a little bit of a pastoral, warmer answer. And here it is. To the question of why not me. I don't know. But God does. And he doesn't waste anything. I don't know the answer. Why not me? But God does, and he doesn't waste anything. And what I would say is that that be very leery of anyone who claims to know precisely why you have suffered or are still suffering. Be leery of any person who claims to explain, oh, it's because of X, Y, and Z. 
Be leery of any person who tells you why your suffering takes place, including yourself. Sometimes it is our own voice that we hear lies from more than anything else. The temptation is to look at what God has done for others and feel envious or bitter or feel resentment towards them because he hasn't done that for us. And I, I, I understand that, that sentiment and that feeling. But the reality is that we are not privileged to know the stories of other people. It's so easy to compare ourselves, is it not, to what other people have and what we don't have, whether it is about a physical ability, whether it is about health, whether it is about status, finances, whatever it is, relationships. We tend to have this comparative mindset. But we are not privileged to know the full stories of God's work in the lives of others. God only allows us to know our part of the story. There, there's a, you may be familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, written by C.S. Lewis. My favorite book in that series is The Horse and His Boy. And, and there's this story, I'll, I'll summarize it very, very briefly, but there's a scene where uh, there are two characters, um, Erebus and Shasta. Erebus is a girl, Shasta is a boy, and they each have a horse, Quinn and Bree. And, and they're, they're fleeing danger in this moment, and they're, they're trying to get to safety. And as they're fleeing, a lion comes out of the woods, attacks Erebus, claws her back, and then relents and leaves. And later on, they find out that this lion was none other than Aslan, the Christ figure in the story of Narnia. And Shasta goes to Aslan and says, why on earth did you come and attack Erebus in her moment of greatest despair and fear? Why did you make a very terrible situation worse by attacking her? How could that possibly be something that a good and just king like yourself would do? Shasta could not comprehend why God would do this to why Aslan would do this to Erebus. And then Aslan responds with these tender words, Child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. And, and, and the reason I bring this story to us in, in the light of this story in Acts 3 is that I, I don't know your full story. I don't know what God is doing in you and through you. But what I do know is that he doesn't waste anything in our life, including our pain, including our suffering, including our heartache. In fact, and I, please, please hear this, it's not as, not as a cold response, but in fact, our pain often has a hidden strength in it that has an ability to tell a more powerful story, even more powerful than a story of healing. You're going to get two C.S. Lewis quotes for, for in one sermon. So C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a very interesting book. It's, it's, written, it's a demon writing to another demon about how to tempt their human patience. You, you have to kind of get into the mindset of a demon, which is weird. Uh, but, but listen to what Wormwood the demon says, or so what Screwtape says to this other demon, Wormwood. Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause, referring to the cause of demons, our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, referring to God's will, no, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe in which every trace of him, referring to God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. 
The powers of the kingdom of our enemy are never more in jeopardy than when we feel as though there is no hope and no explanation to our suffering, and yet we continue to be faithful to God. That is a remarkable testimony that the kingdom of God has broken into a broken world. I share this with us because I know that question of why not me may be bubbling up inside some of us. And to that point, what I want to say, we want to know your story. We want to pray with you and for you, come alongside you, share in your suffering. And so if you would count us worthy to be recipients of part of your story, let us know. We're actually going to have a prayer station in the back during communion, which I'll share here in a second. But, but I want you to know that we want to see you and care for you in that time and that God does not waste a thing. So again, that was a long excursus on, on a part of the story that I wanted to give attention to. Now, I want to, let me, let's return, just for, let, let's just take a deep breath. I know that's a big kind of, to come back to the story, but I want to finish the rest of Acts 3. Peter, after seeing this healing take place, we record, the, uh, Luke records these words of us. Peter says, why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, referring to Jesus, his name has made his, this man strong whom you see and know. And so the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of you. Peter says all of this to make it abundantly clear that this miracle is about Jesus. It's not about Peter. It's not about John. It's not even about the lame man who is healed. It is about pointing to Jesus so that the testimony of his name that saves might be known. This is where we see the gospel that is seen and heard on display. This is where we see the gospel as news that should be shown and told. If the story here in Acts 3 ended with just the miracle, then you would have a gospel, we would have a gospel of deed only, and it would have been very easy for Peter to take credit for it. But conversely, if the story was just about telling this lame man the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, then the lame man may not have ever been fully seen, cared for, and welcomed in at the end of the story. The gospel is news that we show and that we tell. And Peter says this, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up here. Peter says this in Acts 3, 19-20. Therefore repent and turn back. Why? So that your sins may be wiped out. And he continues, and so that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he, may be, that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you. Peter is calling them to repent and believe the good news. Why? So that times of refreshing may come. And this phrase, the times of refreshing, is a phrase to refer to the coming of the kingdom of God. It is, is referring to a time where the kingdom of God breaks in. And what is our responsibility in seeing this kingdom break in? Peter tells us the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, quoting Moses, saying, raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you. 
And when Peter is quoting Moses, you're saying, listen to everything he tells you. That word listen comes from the Hebrew word shema. We've talked about this word before, how that word does not just mean to hear with your ears, but to put into action what you have heard. There is no Hebrew word for the word obey. It is the word shema, to listen. And so to listen to the words of the prophet is to put into practice what he has said. All of this is to say that this first miracle of the church is about showing the fullness of the gospel that is to be seen and heard in word and in deed. It is not one over the other. Dr. Daryl Bach in his commentary on Acts beautifully summarizes this, referring to this first miracle. Their ministry is holistic. They preach a message and engage and minister to a person's needs at the same time. One reinforces the other. To say that God loves you without showing it leaves the message empty. To minister but never point to God leaves the one ministered to without a clue as to what has motivated the love. The gospel is news that we show and we tell. To get into this back and forth question of what's more important, sharing the gospel or loving our neighbor, it's like asking which wing of the plane is more important. It's like asking which twin in the womb is more important. It's like asking what's more important with barbecue, the meat or the sauce. Have you ever had barbecue? You can't have it without both those things. It is a silly question to ask because it is a both and reality. The gospel is good news that we show and we tell. And I think I've already said this, but I will close with this. I'm getting ready to close, just so you know. Dr. Carl Ellis, who, who's probably one of the, arguably one of the most influential theologians of the late 20th century, and for sure one of the most influential African-American theologians in the 20th century, uh, refers to our, our need to embrace a side A and side B theology. If you, if you remember records, do you remember records? You know, you had a, an A side and a B side. And when records were recorded, all of the hits were recorded on the A side. And all the songs that were kind of lame were put on the B-side. And what Dr. Ellis says is that we have embraced kind of an A-side theology and B-side theology. The A-side theology is what we believe with our minds, the intellectual. And the B-side is kind of what we do in loving our neighbor. And we have settled into an A-side, B-side theology that is bankrupt. And this is what Dr. Ellis says. The problem goes to the very foundation of our theology itself, namely... A weakness on side B theology. This has rendered our theology deficient at the core, allowing much of the evangelical community, and he's an evangelical theologian, much of the evangelical community to peacefully coexist with slavery, with Jim Crow, racial discrimination, maltreatment of immigrants, cruelty towards First Nations, etc. Emancipating Reformed theology from this deficiency will require us to do some serious side B theology without neglecting side A. Why is he saying this? Because the gospel is good news that is to be seen and heard. And the reason why is because the gospel itself, known as Jesus, is the word of God revealed to us, made flesh. You look, need not look any further than the person of Jesus. Why is the gospel to be seen and heard? Why should we see word and deed bound together? Because the word of God that reveals who he is came in the person of Jesus who drew near to us, suffered with us, entered into our pain. Why is the gospel to be shown and heard? Because Jesus is the word made flesh. Amen? When that is the truth of the gospel, it widens our understanding of the message of the kingdom. We need a gospel of word and deed.
And so in that spirit, what I want us to do, I, I want to take a moment for us to pray. And what I'd like to do is to lead us in what, what I'm calling a centering prayer. And here's what I'd like for us to do. If, if you wouldn't mind, you don't need to do this, but if you don't mind just closing your eyes, you're going to bow your head, if that's helpful. But what I want us to do is to lead us in a time of thinking about and asking the Spirit to bring to our attention in this moment the people in our life who need to hear the gospel proclaimed to them. I want you to ask just in this moment, just quietly where you are, ask for the Holy Spirit, Lord, make known to me who in my life needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pay attention to who this person is. Maybe it's a face, maybe it's a name. But focus in on that person and then just ask this question right now prayerfully on your own. Lord, what would you have me do next? And now in this moment, direct our attention to that quote-unquote, side B theology and ask, Holy Spirit, who in my life do I need to love the gospel with? Who do I need to show the love of Jesus to? Ask the Holy Spirit to bring that person to your attention. Focus on who they are, their name, their face. And now ask, as, as we said earlier, Lord, what would you have me do next? And then lastly, ask this question. Lord, how do you want to show me the truth and the love of the gospel? How do you want to show me the truth and the love of the gospel? Lord, would you move in us and through us so that we might know and embrace, delight in, and reflect the fullness of the gospel in word and in deed so that those who are far from you may be brought near and that those who are cold and rejected and set off to the side may be welcomed in through the truth and the love of the gospel. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.